What will it take to get the world's major economies off fossil fuels? Climate One conversations explore all dimensions of the climate challenge, the exciting and scary, the individual and systemic. I'm Greg Dalton. The purveyors of doubt and lies and distortion have declared war on common sense and science. And we need to fight back. In late 2019, former U.S. Senator and Secretary of State John Kerry declared a World War Zero on carbon pollution. The name highlights both the national security threat posed by global warming and the type of wartime mobilization needed to cut carbon emissions. U.S. emissions are forecast to drop 7% this year, about the rate of decline needed globally to meet the Paris climate commitments. But can those commitments be met without sending the economy off a cliff, like Wile E. Coyote in the old cartoons? Well, if the commitment is made, if you make a transition and begin to do the things necessary to not make this the result of a catastrophe, but to make it part of everyday life, the bet in Paris was that people were going to begin immediately to be able to make that transition. And for the first two years after Paris, $358 million a year, billion dollars, was invested in alternative renewable energy. So for the first time ever, more money began to shift away from fossil fuel and into sustainable energy. If we had stayed on that track and the United States had continued to lead, we would be in a position now to begin to see where you would meet uh, that point where these could be sustainable reductions in five years, six years, 10 years, by bringing online smart grids, uh, the capacity to send energy from one part of the country to the other, beginning to transition out of coal into alternative uh, energy sources, large solar fields, wind, wind farms, uh, hydrogen fuel uh, mixed with uh, uh, hydro and geothermal and other things. But none of that planning, none of it, has taken place with the hand of, uh, of uh, the partnership between government and the private sector. And so, in fact, the opposite has happened. We have a president who pulled out of the agreement, giving license to a bunch of countries in the world that were reluctant to join anyway, to go back to being reluctant. And so the people we dragged to the table in Paris have become, you know, scofflaws. And, and, they're, and in fact, no nation in the world was on track to meet the Paris Agreement until coronavirus hit and everything shut down. Now, obviously, that's not the way anybody envisioned doing it. Uh, we need to do it because we're shifting out of the polluting fuels. And we haven't been doing that fast enough or in a concerted way. The way we will do it is by planning, by enlisting the private sector to become part of the transition, by creating a, a, a framework within which citizens across the country can afford to go buy electric vehicles, get the auto manufacturers to come in and cooperate and, and show you their plans for a faster transition out of internal combustion into electric, building out a program from the federal government to assist in building out the infrastructure necessary for the charging. I mean, it's, it's planning. It's really putting the nation on a war footing to avoid the next pandemic. And the next pandemic will be exacerbated by climate crisis. Uh, and the way to, to, to get ahead of it is to prepare and make the decisions now. 
James Baker and George Shultz, two elders in the Republican Party, recent wrote an uh, article in Foreign Affairs saying that China is now the top provider, exporter of wind turbines, solar panels, batteries, the building blocks of a clean energy economy. But most of their party doesn't really listen to them anymore. Their, their party's in a very different place. Why aren't more Republicans listening to James Baker and George Shultz? Well, let me just say, for, first of all, you should add that uh, China is also the largest exporter of climate change emissions now. They're the dirtiest fuel provider in the world. They provide 50% of all the coal-fired power plants in, in the world uh, are Chinese, and Chinese are now funding the building of new coal-fired plants through their One Belt, One Road initiative. So we have a major, major issue to raise with China uh, we would like to cooperate. They should be uh, able to cooperate. We did cooperate in Paris, but this administration not only doesn't try to go proactively to do that, they're moving in the opposite direction here at home by unleashing much greater levels of, of uh, pollutants into the air, cutting back on the automobile restrictions, cutting back on the pollution uh, restrictions that existed. So that has to be the predicate. And that's part of the reason why that party today won't listen to George Shultz and Jim Baker the way they ought to. Uh, they're radical anti-government disruptors who really want to just pull the system down. They're against any kind of government. Many of them are libertarians, uh, and they want to see uh, no action whatsoever on those fronts uh, because their definition of freedom is the freedom to be able to pollute, to do the things they want to do. Uh, Jim Baker and, and uh, George Schultz have a great idea, which is pricing carbon. And the answer is, it is one of the single most effective ways that we could begin to reduce emissions by properly pricing carbon in terms of its economic impact and cost to all of us as citizens. What, what a lot of people ignore, unfortunately, is that here in the United States, we are currently spending vast sums uh, of taxpayer money in order just to clean up after the impacts of climate change. We had three storms two years ago that cost our taxpayers $265 billion just to clean up. Maria, Irma, and Harvey. And, and so Sir Nicholas Stern has written a very important book about the economics of climate change, and he makes it crystal clear it is far, far more expensive to pay for inaction than to take actions. Unfortunately, too many of the members of today's so-called Republican Party uh, are ready to ignore all of the signs, all of the science, because they're fundamentally afraid of what uh, the social media will do to them through the encouragement of the current president who uses this for as a political wedge. We keep hearing, though, rumblings of, of a new position or a new story, Kevin McCarthy, some openings there. Uh, of course, we've been hearing that since 2015 when Pope Francis came to Washington, D.C., and some Republicans came out and said, hey, we need to do that, move on climate with the, the Pope's political cover. Do you give any credence to the idea that there's openings and softening in the Republican Party? I think that uh, what you see right now are pure political moves that are being made gingerly by a few people who are beginning to fear that the Republican Party may lose the next generation 
on this issue. And I've heard uh, various uh, people from Frank Luntz to a few other representatives and senators start lamenting that their party isn't, uh, needs to get on the bandwagon, so to speak. So for the moment, I think it's rhetorical, it's obviously political, uh, and it's insufficient to the task of meeting the challenge of what we need to do to get the job done. And ironically, maybe not ironically, it's the wrong word, but sadly, uh, these guys are really missing the boat because the fact is the world's greatest economic opportunity is the energy market. It's the biggest marketplace in the world. It's four to five billion users today. It's a multi-trillion dollar market. It's gonna grow hugely over the next years. In fact, there will be nine billion users by about 2050. And the United States of America is not in the hunt to be the technology leader, to be the country that is producing the innovations necessary to meet this task. Uh, and, and that's really giving up a major market without a fight, which is quite un-American in my judgment. Well, right now those markets are in turmoil. Oil recently you know, went into a negative price. Uh, there's the, the world is awash in oil. That's affecting, there's a, a lot of industries receiving help in the United States, airlines, et cetera. Should the oil industry receive help? And what do you make of the chaos right now with negative oil prices? Well, the chaos, the reflection of negative oil prices is because there's a glut in the marketplace. It's a supply demand curve. And the fact is that it went down to whatever it was, 37 bucks negative. It doesn't mean really people are going to pay for that, but people who are playing the futures are, are sort of paying the piper, so to speak, because it will go back up and we'll get back to it. People aren't driving today. There's no, I mean, there just aren't that many cars on the road. There's not that much demand for the use of, for gasoline and oil. So people are actually putting some of it on tankers offshore, just trying to find a place to store it until the value goes back up and they can sell it again. What I think we have to be thinking about is what, what do we want to do coming out of this crisis? How do we rebuild our economy? This is an enormous opportunity for us not to just go back to business as usual, but to be funding uh, things in our infrastructure program that are going to build that energy uh, capacity of the future. America doesn't even have a grid. We don't have the ability to send clean energy from one part of the country to the other. We should. It's just common sense. And that stuff but, is not in these packages so far. None of that. No, in. none of that is in these packages. And that's, again, an absence of leadership. Uh, uh, just a no vision at all about what we ought to be doing. This is an opportunity. If we're going to spend the money, the last thing we should be doing is spending it uh, to keep digging that hole. You know, the definition of insanity is when you <laughs> keep making the same mistake over and over again. My hope is that um, we'll have a day of reckoning. And I think certainly with the election, if we get a new president who is committed to this, then we will have a very significant debate in this country about where we need to head in the future. It makes sense to invest in a whole bunch of things, including innovation and research. We should have the largest single uh, commitment ever in the history of our country to R&D for all of our colleges and universities, our labs, everybody be it ought to be in the hunt for major battery storage. The day we win the battle of battery storage and get it into weeks, literally two weeks, three weeks, 
we are going to win the battle. We've won the battle of climate because the minute you have that storage, then you can wholesale uh, stopgap the problem of baseload for companies, factories. They've got to know that their, their factory, their production is not going to be interrupted by the lack of wind or the lack of sun. You've got to have the storage to provide that continuity. The day we have that, you're going to see a massive shift out of fossil fuel and a massive shift. Now, it doesn't mean fossil fuel goes away. Within the scientific analysis of where we need to be to have equilibrium and solve the problem of climate, there is a carbon budget. We will still be using oil for various things. Uh, we will still need some natural gas as a, as a bridge fuel. But the long-term energy future of America is not going to be written in fossil fuel. Climate's no longer over the horizon. Climate is happening now. So I am convinced that uh, this is going to open people up to reality and to wanting to have leaders who don't hide behind lies, distortions, uh, financed delays by big corporations that don't want to change. Uh, people have had it with that. They've seen how disruptive it is to their lives, and I think they're going to be deeply motivated, highly motivated, uh, to make sure that uh, we have accountability from people in public office. Last question, Secretary. Uh, Kerry, flying has changed in America, around the world. The world is not flying. Can you see, going, when going back to whatever normal, are you going to fly less yourself and do more like we're doing this right now on video? I'm convinced that everybody will be doing more Zoom meetings, more meetings, one kind, more Skype, whatever. Uh, I've heard from more friends who've said, you know, I've got more done at home in the last weeks. And, and I scratched my head and say, what was I doing going to all this and getting on a plane and flying here and there? I think it will change uh, life in that regard. I don't know how much. I don't think anybody knows how much. Um, still, there will be things that you've got to do personally. There'll still be travel. There'll still be le you know, leisure and, and uh, entertainment travel and so forth and so on. It'll take a while to get back to it. But also airplanes, you know, that's ultimately going to change. I mean, airplanes, I think, are going to, they're going to find a, a different source of power, a different fuel, biofuels, whatever it's going to be, maybe even hydrogen, who knows? But we will get to, we'll solve these problems. That I am convinced of if we get leadership that wants to solve them, that is ready to acknowledge reality, truth, facts, two and two is four. And we got a bunch of people who are trying to argue that it's five right now. No, it is four. And there's certain things where we know it's a fact. And the fact is, we, we know that human beings are contributing to this climate crisis. We also know human beings can solve the problem. We have many of the solutions right in front of us now, and we will find the, the rest of those that are needed. I have total confidence in our ingenuity. We just need the willpower. It's not a question of, of, of lack of capacity. It's just willpower, readiness, commitment. And, and we need to make that commitment. Former U.S. Senator and Secretary of State John Kerry on decarbonizing the global economy. Coming up, how China can and needs to be part of that effort. China basically has hit some of the climate goals announced a few years ago, including the ones that were part of the Paris Agreement. But so far, it hasn't announced any new goals yet, so we're still waiting to see whether it has something more ambitious in store. That's up next when Climate One continues.
Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about decarbonizing the global economy. Getting the United States and China to collaborate on anything has never been easy. I think if you could have imagined one issue that you thought might bring the two countries together to work, it would be a a global pandemic. Um, But to the contrary, that's not happening. David Sandelow is inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University and author of The Guide to Chinese Climate Policy. He's joined by Justin Wu, head of Asia Pacific at Bloomberg New Energy Finance, or NEF. In October of 2017, Chinese President Xi Jinping said that, quote, China is taking the driving seat in international cooperation to respond to climate change, end quote. Could that still be true as the country grapples with the COVID pandemic? I guess we can say it's still true to a certain extent. Um, let's say China is still part of the Paris Agreement and hasn't, hasn't changed its stance on that. Um, recently, it uh, has uh, said that it's hit its uh, sort of carbon intensity uh, reduction goals. In other words, its carbon emissions per GDP goals uh, two years early, actually. So it had a goal of uh, reducing it by about 45% from 2005 levels by 2020. Uh, and then the country hit the goal actually in 2018. Um, but what happened was actually it failed to announce a new goal uh, in the middle of the COVID crisis. So, you know, I, I think when you look at China and, and these types of goals, uh, often they would announce goals that um, seem really good on paper, um, but they're relatively easy to hit. And then the expectation is that it would always uh, announce a more ambitious goal later on. Uh, but this time in the middle of the COVID crisis, uh, it basically has hit um, some of the climate goals announced a few years ago, including the ones that were part of the Paris Agreement. Um, but so far, it hasn't announced any any new goals yet. So we're we're still waiting to see whether uh, it has something more ambitious in store uh, for later on. Yeah, and around the world, we're not seeing a rising ambition toward co- uh, carbon goals. David Sandelow, is uh, is China easing off on its on its climate progress? You know, maybe it's worth just highlighting how important the question you just asked is, Greg, because you know some of your audience will know, but maybe not everybody, China is the largest greenhouse gas emitter in the world by far. Uh, Last year, China's emissions were greater than the emissions of the US, Europe, and Japan combined. Um, And and so what China does is central to any solution to climate change. Now, you know, it's also important to note that China's cumulative emissions over a couple of centuries have been less than half those of the United States, and CO2 stays in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. And China's per capita emissions are less than half those of the United States. But, but so what China does is absolutely central. And so, so your question about China's ambition is, is really important. I, I agree with what Justin said. Um, first, you know, Chinese government remains committed to the Paris Agreement and the Paris process. Um, but at the same time, I saw even starting last year, um, a lessening of a priority for climate change, as I think is compared to prior years. Um, and it, I think also a lessening of priority around some air pollution issues. And um, uh, in 2015, 2016, the statements from the Chinese leadership about coal really emphasized backing out coal 
from the energy mix and um, making sure that air pollution and, and greenhouse gas issues were addressed. Last year, even before COVID, there was a prominent speech by Premier Lee Kachung in which he talked about developing coal. Um, and then that was repeated again in the opening uh, speech at the National People's Congress in May of this year. So I think there's been a um, I'd say a reduction in the priority that this receives. Now, the 14 five-year plan process coming up is going to be very important uh, as, in terms of uh, ambition going forward. So we'll see how that goes. Coal is uh, king in China. It uh, consumes more than half of uh, the, the world's coal. Uh, coal uh, use in China trended downward, uh, and then it seems to have uh, ticked up recently. So, uh, Justin, is, is you know some of the gains on coal reduction in China being erased? Is, is coal rebounding? Yeah. I mean, I think when you look at China and climate, I mean, to David's point earlier, you can always take a half full or half empty approach. Um, I think the story of coal is that, um, you know, as you rightly pointed out, it has been trending down in terms of uh, its contribution to to power uh, power generation in China. Its overall use is is sort of the growth is slowed and in some cases trending downwards. Um, but at the same time, we're expecting China to build another 100 or 150 gigawatts of coal power uh, in the next five years. So that's uh, more than you know any other country actually in the world, more than India, which is a, a distant second. Um, as you look at the beginning of the year, what's really interesting is with the lockdowns that happened uh, in China due to the COVID uh, pandemic, uh, coal use actually has plummeted. So as as power demand fell within the country, actually it was coal power generation that uh, fell uh, relative to other sources of, of power generation. Um, but as things eased up uh, in April and May, we're, as we're looking at the data more recently, um, it was actually back with a bit of a vengeance. So um, it's, it was almost some of the factories were making up for lost time um, and coal generation actually spiked a bit in, in April. Um, and then the question is, you know, what does the rest of the year look like, right? Is it going to be, uh, are we going to follow a pattern very similar to the post-2008 uh, financial crisis where actually factories roared back to life and we saw emissions actually tick up over the next couple of years as as the government tried to uh, stimulate and recover the economy um, are we gonna or are we going to take a more moderate approach um, the good news is that early signs is that it seems like the government's taking a bit more of a moderate approach uh, this time around um, but it's still early days and obviously you know I think uh, we see that often economic priorities will will take sort of uh, take precedence over other things. So if if there's really an effort to really push uh, to recover the economy, we could see things sort of uh, rebound, such as emissions or or factories and things like that. And there's some reports that they're really focusing on jobs and this recovery, where they've focused on GDP as t uh, growth targets in the past. Uh, David Sandelo, there's some talk, uh, not yet codified yet in Europe about having a green recovery coming out of the COVID crisis. Is it possible that, that uh, you know, Europe could surge ahead or be more aggressive coming out of COVID if what we're hearing here is China isn't putting, you know, a clean recovery front and center. They're trying to get their economy back on track, get jobs back in place. Is that fair? Yeah, I think a green stimulus is getting um, less attention in Beijing than in Brussels. But more attention than in Washington, D.C. right now, uh, where there's very little happening on that topic. Um, you know, one interesting point about the first quarter of 2020 in China it, uh, and, and the energy sector is that as coal power plummeted, as Justin said, solar power 
actually increased, or solar generation to be precise. Um, in the first quarter of, of 2020, according to statistics I've seen, uh, solar generation actually increased 10 to 12% as compared to the prior year, which is pretty striking given that the economy had dropped around 6 or 7%. And I think the reason is because uh, in China, there's about 30 gigawatts of new solar power capacity added during 2019. And then there's been power sector reforms. So there's now renewable electricity quotas in some provinces. So renewable electricity actually comes onto the grid first in some provinces, which has changed from prior years. Um, on your question about green stimulus, to elaborate further, um, in the last big recession in 2009, Chinese Chinese investment in infrastructure in many ways led the world in terms of recovery. That demand was hugely important. There's a lot of heavy infrastructure investment. The Chinese government, I think, is signaling, first of all, that the, that the stimulus measures are not going to be as big as they were back in 2009. And, and there's concern, I think, about indebtedness in the Chinese system that limits that. But also that the, it's going to be, quote, new infrastructure investments, not the type of heavy construction investments in the same way, but, quote, new infrastructure. And, and some of the examples of new infrastructure that have been given are clean energy, um, including um, uh, infrastructure for electric vehicles um, and uh, uh, high voltage transmission lines, mass transit investments, and then some other types of investments like 5G. So I think that that's the dialogue, as I've heard it right now, that's going on on green stimulus in China. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Just just to add one on that one, um, I, I think it's important to, uh, and I like David's sort of, uh, 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 you know, arranging it in the way in terms of Brussels, uh, Beijing and Washington in terms of the green greenness of the stimulus. Um, but I would add um, the one now is a lot more focused on uh, uh, sort of digital infrastructure, new technologies. Um, you know, the effort is to build a more service based, high value economy versus one that's more uh, focus on manufacturing. So I think it's important to understand that the this, this stimulus is more about a longer term goal towards China's economic transformation rather than a specific, uh, I would say, a climate uh, goal. It just so happens it's less carbon intensive, which probably is a good thing for the world. Um, but I wouldn't really call it a, a specific green agenda towards uh, reducing emissions, although it may have that uh, nice side effect. Justin Wu is head of uh, Asia Pacific at Bloomberg NEF, and David Sandelow is the author of The Guide to Chinese Climate Policy and an inaugural fellow at the Center for Global Energy Policy at Columbia University. One other thing is the strained bilateral relationship. You know, the Paris Climate Accord was really rested on uh, a deal that President Obama made with President Xi and the two big emitters, uh, current and historic, coming forward. And that now has been strained. So how does the bi strained bilateral relationship and the kind of peer pressure that played a role in Paris with, you know, Modi and Obama and Xi, has that fallen apart? Or is, you know, is that still, where does that stand, David? Well, you know, big, big picture, U.S.-China relations are as difficult uh, as they've been in at least 50 years right now um, since the normalization of relations. Um, and I think in the next year, they're going to get worse. I think we, we have trends that are driving us in very difficult directions, including nationalism in both countries. Um, and the governments in both countries are not only failing to contain that nationalism, they're inflaming that nationalism. Um, and it's spilling out in a number of ways. I think if you could have imagined one issue that you thought might bring the two countries together to work, it would be a, a global pandemic. Um, but to the contrary, that's not happening. Um, and uh, the climate change agenda, you know, it's completely fallen apart under the Trump administration, which 
doesn't believe that climate change is an issue that merits attention. And, and um, I do think that if there's a Biden administration, which uh, that although the U.S.-China relationship will remain extremely challenging um, because there's, there's really a broad bipartisan consensus in the United States about some of the issues that China presents. So I, I think, think the, the, the relationship overall will still be very challenging, but I think there will at least be desire in both governments to reach agreement on climate change. Uh, I think it won't be easy because there'll be disagreements on specific issues. It'll be part of a broader set of very difficult bilateral relationships, but at least there'll be a desire to get to yes on that. And so we'll, we'll see how that develops if there is a Biden administration. Justin, one thing that people in Silicon Valley and other you know, clean tech investors, companies in the United States worry about uh, is that the U.S. is losing competitiveness to China moving ahead. China is going to own the technologies of the 21st century, and that and that is batteries, solar, et cetera. Um, is that still the case or is China um, perhaps not uh, pulling ahead so, so far ahead of, uh, of the U.S. as others might have feared? Yeah, I think we need to pick apart that that statement a little bit and, and sort of think about this, right? So I think if you if you say that China is leading in uh, things like solar panels and, and batteries, then yes, the answer is yes. But I think, you know, if you talk about China's leadership, quote unquote, in, in renewable energy, uh, I think China's been basically playing to its strengths, which is manufacturing, right? Um, it, it has been a leader in terms of manufacturing the volume of uh, relatively cheap and affordable solar panels and now batteries. Um, so it's done that extremely well, and it's probably going to be, um, you know, pretty dominant in the supply chain of these uh, components in, in the future. Now, whether that's um, technology dominance, I think that's debatable because I think there are, you know, you need equipment, obviously, to build renewable energy projects and other things uh, and cars, electric cars. Uh, but you need a whole bunch of other things as well, right? Materials and software and, and you know, systems to run it, uh, you know, other things like that. And, and I think in, in those other things, uh, it's, it's not so clear that China has a leadership. There's a lot of other companies and in and, and, uh, and different countries involved in, uh, you know, developing software and, and other, other types of things. So, so I think that's sort of, um, I think that's just important to note uh, when, we, when we talk about that. Um, I'll just add actually one other point that um, uh, to to your previous question, Greg, about about uh, leading climate change. I think um, yes, if you look at sort of uh, collaboration between countries, I think that's not really a great story right now, and and that's obviously we need more of that if you want to solve the climate problem. But also, I think you need to look at companies as well. Um, and I think actually here we do see more positive signs um, in, in companies around Asia and even in China as well. I think more companies actually are, are embracing a more sustainable business plan or actually looking at sustainability measures within within the businesses. So it comes back to a question of whether, you know, do we need everything to be government-led um, or do you think companies actually can play a very important role here as well? And, and over across at least other parts of Asia, we do see that corporations and companies are actually uh, taking a much more progressive stance on, on sustainability and, and the climate than some of the governments in the region. David Sandalo, uh, some recent numbers came out from the famous Keeling Curve, which measures the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere from Mauna Loa and, and Hawaii. And uh, despite the global economy tanking the last few months, uh, the Keeling Curve shows emissions did not really dip. So what does that tell us about uh, you know, the world economy screeching to a halt and yet 
the carbon didn't notice. It's such an important observation. I, I think, first of all, the global economy came as close as it's ever come to kind of going into lockdown in the past couple of months. And climate and, and carbon dioxide emissions dropped on the order of 10%. I think the data is still coming in, but, but you know, roughly in that order. So it, it underscores what incredible challenge we have um, in decarbonizing the global economy. And, and we need levels of priority and seriousness in governments around the world that, that we haven't had yet. Otherwise, we're not going to solve this problem. And just and then another point on the basic science of this, you know, as, as long as emissions keep um, uh, happening, the concentration in the atmosphere is going to go up. Um, this is, you know, so, so even, even if we cut emissions by 90%, um, the, the concentrations would still be going up in the atmosphere. So we, we've got a long ways to go. Justin Wu, you, I mean, you, I want to just not um, overlook the fact that you're in Hong Kong and there's been a lot of strife in Hong Kong and civil liberties being challenged. Uh, so a lot of things under assault where, where you are in Hong Kong. Um, are you optimistic about the future, of the, given the climate numbers we just mentioned, as well as kind of the, the other strains? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it's one thing that we can take away from this is, is we, if we want to solve the climate issue, it's going to be a lot harder than solving this global pandemic. Um, so I, I don't know if that's uh, comfort for us or not. Um, and, and David's right. You know, if, if we look at uh, the lockdown, I think for most of the world, that's been about three months. Uh, you know, the Hong Kong protest has been about a year now. I mean, the climate, I mean, solving this climate uh, issue is going to require probably a decade or more of actually concentrated effort, um, a lot of global cooperation, uh, and actually a, a serious change to a lot of things. Um, so, you know, I, I think I think the order of magnitude of what we need to do with climate is, is much larger. Um, and obviously, it's going to play out over a couple of decades and not, not sort of just um, something we can do for a few months or even a few years and hope that we can we can solve the problem. So, you know, I, it might be that we can't sort of use um, a lockdown or, or something that dramatically changes people's lifestyles for uh, a long period of time to solve this problem. We may need to look at other ways of doing it. But actually, I think, uh, you know, the issues that we face today really has brought, made it very clear to me and many others that uh, the climate issue is, is much more difficult to solve than, than probably we uh, initially realized. Yeah, Justin's exactly right. It's a, just if I could just add, it, it, certainly lockdowns won't solve this problem. I don't think anybody is suggesting that lockdowns will solve this problem. I think we need transformation um, with, of, of the global economy. And, and there's actually evidence that it's possible, I think. I mean, what we've seen with renewable energy in the past decade really underscores uh, the pot transformational potential of, of technologies. Um, and I think the, in the power sector, we already have a line of sight to how we, we can achieve decarbonization. Now we, we need to do that in some other sectors as well. So I don't think anybody should despair, P particularly when you look at the younger generation um, and, and awareness growing around the world on this topic. So I think there's real hope. David Sandelo, author of The Guide to Chinese Climate Policy and inaugural fellow at the Center on Global Energy Policy at Columbia University, and Justin Wu, head of Asia Pacific at Bloomberg Neff. This is Climate One. Coming up, how other rich countries are faring in the struggle to decarbonize their economies. In Europe, we are only now catching up with China. So we will see. The race is on, that's for sure, and, and we see Europe catching up. That's up next when Climate One continues.
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about decarbonizing the global economy. I think what Europe needs for that is a proper geopolitical strategy that takes into account climate risk, but also the energy transition. Lisa Fisher is senior policy advisor with E3G, a climate change think tank in Europe. She's joined by Julia Palasconova, senior director of vehicles and e-mobility at the Brussels-based advocacy group Transport and Environment. I began our conversation by asking Julia about Germany's $145 billion stimulus plan, which Bloomberg recently hailed as the greenest in the world. We are quite surprised ourselves, to be honest with you, despite so much lobbying from the car industry, which is an incredibly powerful um, sector in a country like Germany. We actually have the stimulus that only subsidizes future electric vehicles. That means that as a manufacturer, you only would get the money to actually really invest in the production of technologies that are green hydrogen or batteries. And it also means that as a consumer, I can only get government support to buy an electric car. To give you an example, uh, if I wanted to buy a very medium, typical electric car, which is under 45,000 euros, I would get a 9,000 subsidy off the price tag. Now, it has never been better to buy an electric car than today in Germany. That means a lot. And actually, it doesn't just mean that it's good for the climate. What it shows is that Germany clearly bet on electrification as the technology for the future. So it's a climate and an industrial strategy now. If the biggest country in Europe is going electric, it means that Europe will go electric. During the Great Recession, fossil-fueled cars in Europe and the United States received big bailouts. Industry asked for that support again. Why didn't it happen? You, the, the, clearly, the German government supports electrification, but you know, BMW, Mercedes, Audi, not so much. Well, 2020 is very different from 2009, right? I think, first of all, we now actually have um, competitive electric cars on the market. And all car makers in Europe, be it Volkswagen, BMW, Renault or Peugeot, are all bringing electric cars. In Europe, we actually saw the investments of 60 billion last year into e-mobility. And that's one of the reasons. So it is now a real industry. But secondly, and really importantly, we now have binding CO2 targets for car makers to meet. So from this year onwards in Europe, car makers have to be under a 95 gram per kilometer target for all the cars they sell. So governments can simply no longer justify giving money to polluting SUVs because that will just push car makers over at the edge to to pay fines. And, you know, it's quite important to just say that already before COVID-19, we had soaring electric car sales in Europe. The momentum was already there. 7% of all the cars in Europe sold between January and March 2020 had a plug. That's record sales, actually, much higher than you guys on on the other side of of the pond, if if I may. And I think that's quite important. So we saw that the market is there. So the politicians are now using the stimulus programs to continue the momentum and in a way replace potentially lost private investment with public money so we can actually shape the industry and see, put them on the route that we want them to see in the future. Lisa Fisher, last December, the European Union announced a $1 trillion green deal aimed at transforming the 27 member economies to higher quality of life and lower carbon emissions. That was pre-COVID. Is that still alive now in this economic crisis? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question. Absolutely. It's still um, still alive. Um, I think um, the European Commission, when it announced its recovery package uh, about a month back, 
they really reaffirmed that they consider it as part of the European growth strategy. And to understand that better, uh, you have to kind of think back at how this European Commission came into power. That was last year, European Parliament elections. There was an unprecedented level of support for the Green Agenda. There was a lot of citizen mobilization. And that really built the backbone of um, the political consensus that brought about this uh, European Commission. The other part of the backstory is, of course, Europe as an economy. Um, it's very dependent on fossil fuel imports at the moment. It is, um, however, at the same time, an exporter of clean technologies, an innovator. Um, and it's quite clear that within this current geopolitical climate to to gain more stance, it should rely on those things that it knows how to do well, which is clean sectors, clean industries, but also reducing dependence on, frankly, quite volatile and already before COVID-19, uh, quite volatile fossil fuel market. The world's largest 50 economies are spending about $12 trillion on their recovery from the COVID crisis and less than 0.2%, 0.2% of that money is targeted for low carbon measures. Um, so what does that say to you about Europe and others in terms of, you know, the recovery out of COVID if such a tiny amount is focused on low carbon technology? Yeah, that's uh, that's a good point. I mean, the European Commission, as part of, of the package it announced, has uh, looked at different measures to ensure that the money that's being spent doesn't do any significant harm, but also that um, which it does with its regular budget, 25% of that is actually targeted towards uh, green spending. So I think the Europe, Europe is definitely going a different way here. You, you, you're still seeing among member states different levels of engagement. So um, Julia was talking about um, the package to, um, towards the automotive industry, which is different in Germany and France to, uh, to Italy. And of course, there the member states put different emphasis. Um, I would probably not expect, you know, what, what you don't expect is 100% of that going towards green. What you expect is a significant share going towards green, but there's a lot of twin challenges like this, like the digital challenge that needs to go hand in hand. Social measures are very important at times of crisis. So the expectation would never be for that to be the, the, the main share or only share. There's a lot of related challenges that we need to invest in for this transformation to be successful. Julia Paulusconova, France also has introduced an, a $9 billion plan to boost its auto industry, including incentives for electric cars. I think they could be up to $14,000, uh, even higher than Germany. Um, France doesn't import cars, real meaningful number of cars to the United States, but still important. Uh, so is this auto shift, you know, it's, it's very strong in Germany. Where else is it moving toward electric in Europe? France is definitely another champion, absolutely, and that also has to do with car makers in France. For example, Renault has been actually one of the first leaders alongside Nissan uh, on electric cars. If you ask anyone today, most people know Nissan Leaf and Renault Zoe. So these are one of the first electric cars we, we have. So there's a really strong growing base for electrification also in, in France. And beyond that, I think there's also a lot of momentum in the UK, for example, in the Netherlands, in Norway. So a number of European countries are, are all going there. Of course, we can't forget the overall global momentum. And I think in Europe, we are only now catching up with China. 
China still leads on batteries, for sure. China also leads on, on some other uh, materials and supply chain. And this is where Europeans are only slowly waking up to have it here in Europe. We should have about 10 factories of batteries coming to, to Europe in the coming years. So we will see. The race is on, that's for sure. And, and we see Europe catching up. A number of uh, governments have announced a ban on internal combustion engine, engines, the, the, you know, the end of the gasoline car. Um, I think some of that is symbolic. It's easy to announce something that will happen uh, for a politician to announce something that will happen when they are no longer in office to pledge, you know, they won't be around to be held accountable. A lot of those things don't have the the uh, force of law. Is that really meaningful, those announcements saying we're going to sunset gasoline cars and diesel cars? Every individual country in Europe is not allowed just to ban anything it wants. You're absolutely right. And that's because we have something in Europe called the European single market. So we have to do this all over the EU. But there's a, there's a momentum to do it all EU-wide. So next year, we'll be reviewing our CO2 standards for vehicles, which are EU-wide. And as part of that, we certainly, as, as transport and environment, are pushing for a full phase-out of diesel, petrol, and natural gas cars here in Europe. If you want to be in line with the Paris Agreement, we must sell the last internal combustion car or the fossil car burning fuels before 2035. So I think that's definitely something. But I'm going to tell you one more thing, and that's something about consumers and cities. So it's true that all over the EU, we might still be a bit far away before we ban all of them. But so many cities and fleets and people are already saying no to these cars. So it's a huge challenge um, to, to, to do that fast, but it's also a huge momentum and a signal to car makers and people. So if I tell you, look, in five years time, you won't be able to drive to Paris or London with your combustion car. Would you buy that car as your next purchase? And that's exactly why these ban announcements are so important, because they show to people, to all of us around, and they guide us to make the purchase choice so even more people go electric because they want to have a car they can take everywhere. Lisa Fisher, you previously worked for the UK Department of Energy and Climate Change, one of the first national agencies to include climate in its name, if I recall correctly. CEOs of 200 major corporations recently called on Prime Minister Boris Johnson to enact a sustainable recovery. Britain announced its race to zero. Um, how serious is this bid by, by the UK to get to race to zero? The UK, as you said, has been in many ways a, a front runner on embedding climate in its policy making, not least with the Climate Change Act uh, at the end of the previous decade. Um, it's got the Committee on Climate Change, a, a quasi government body advising the government on different decarbonization trajectories on its so called carbon budgets, which put quite tight strings uh, on the government actually delivering on its commitments. Um, the UK, as you might know, has taken on a leadership role on hosting the next COP26, which meant to be um, at the end of this year, has been pushed back as a result of the pandemic. It's taken on leadership in the Powering Past Coal Alliance together with uh, Canada. Of course, as we progress with decarbonization, it becomes harder and the, the decisions become harder. While at, on the one hand, um, the prices of technologies go down, we have more options available, renewables are cheap. For example, the offshore wind potential in the UK is massive. I think with the UK, the main challenge will be going forward that as it seeks a new position uh, at global level, it's uh, exiting the European Union. 
or it has exited the European Union. It is uh, negotiating a new uh, trade agreement. Uh, it's looking for a new position in the world. And there it has sort of, it's a pathway decision, right? Does it want to align itself with the countries with high environmental standards, which to date it's um, actually championing itself? Or does it want to ally, align with those trading partners that um, encourage more of a race to, to the bottom on their standards? So I think, I do think that the UK is in sort of facing a major challenge here, but I have quite a lot of confidence that it has the institutions there, that it has public support, public accountability to actually move forward on an um, ambitious pathway on, on climate action. Uh, Julia, America's thought of as the land of the automobile and Europe is more about getting around on trains, high-speed rail and, and trains. Um, how is transit going to be affected in a post-COVID world when people don't want to get on a subway or metro and, and touch a pole or be next to someone who's coughing? That's an excellent question. We've just recently done a polling, actually, of many European citizens across cities to ask them exactly that. And you would be actually surprised that so many people, more than 80%, say that they will happily go back to public transit if it's properly cleaned up and safety is guaranteed. So that's actually, the ball is now in the hands of politicians. If they can ensure that the public transport they, they put back is really compliant with various rules. For example, buses are, are properly cleaned all the time and there's social distancing and the masks are required. People will come back. And even more than that, so many Europeans saw what our air quality can be like on a lockdown, how beautiful our cities are, how clean our rivers are. So, so many people say they don't want to go back to cars, certainly not polluting cars, and they're happy for cities to take space back away from the car-centric communities that we had and give it to things like cycling or walking and so forth. So people do get that cars, safe or not, is not what we, polluting cars uh, is not something that we need to have in our cities in the future. And I will just add one more point here, if I may. Um, buildings are also a great, a big part of the recovery programs in the member states. So we talked about the automotive, but so are the buildings. And this is because getting lots of people to renovate buildings creates jobs. It's actually a great job creation strategy in the recession. So there's lots of governments in Brussels, indeed as well, European government now is doing what they call renovation wave. So we're going to go all around and really set ambitious standards to, to renovate buildings, to create jobs and update the building stock. And I think that's a real opportunity for both the green recovery and the climate ambitions in Europe. We've been talking about decarbonizing some of the world's major economies with Julia Palaskanova, Senior Director of Vehicles and E-Mobility at the Brussels-based advocacy group Transport and Environment, and Lisa Fisher, Senior Policy Advisor with E3G, a climate change think tank in Europe. This program was generously underwritten by the Climate Works Foundation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. Bye.